Good morning, everybody. I don't know about you guys, but I love a good story. I love a good story, whether it's a movie, whether a great football game like yesterday, or or whether it's um, a good book, more more likely a good book, okay? Um, I love stories because they have messages that they communicate to us. Um, The easiest example to see is like a children's movie. I love children's movies because the message is typically very easy to see and pick up on, okay? They have to portray good and evil in very simplistic terms because their audience is children, right? So I love stories because of the messages that they communicate. You see, every story communicates a message, even in our own lives. I shared with First Service a story about my own life and how it communicates the gospel message. If you were here four months ago, you know that I had a pretty traumatic accident. I got hit by a car, broke two vertebrae, six ribs, tore my shoulder, and was in the hospital for about a week, a little bit less than that. Well, six weeks later, I was healed by God and able to continue doing the race that I had been training for pretty much the entire year. I went from on the pavement, in the hospital, to doing a half Ironman, a triathlon. It's pretty amazing. Six weeks after that, I was in Zion National Park with Trey, Luke, and Delaney, and I was able to run 27 miles across the mountains. I ascended 2,000 feet up and then descended like 3,000 feet down, and I just could not help but just be amazed and laugh at the story that God was writing in my life as he had healed me and I was able to cross the mountains. You see, God was communicating a story, a message through my life. You see, I was on the pavement, I was on the ground, and it was very much so like a lot of our spiritual lives. We were dead, we were on the pavement, there was blood dripping down my face, there was nothing I could do to save myself, and I was picked up off the pavement, and God healed and restored and breathed his life into my lungs. Okay, my story reflects the Christ story. Every good story has a message. God's story is no different. You see, God has been in the communication business since the beginning of time. Hebrews chapter 1 verse 1 says this, In the past, God spoke to our ancestors, to the prophets, at many times and in various ways. A slightly different translation. Well, how has God spoken? I kind of identified real quick, just as a sweet introduction, five different ways that God has spoken in the past in the Old Testament. The first being creation. Psalms 19 says, the heavens declare the glory of God, right? We we just have to look out the window and see, yes, God has created the world and he's speaking to us and revealing to himself to us through creation. How else did God speak in the Old Testament? God spoke through Moses. More, more specifically through the giving of the law. God said, hey, this is what's right. This is what's not right, right? Through the law, we learn what good and wrong is. And God says it very specifically. God has spoken through poets, people who wrote creatively and wrote poems and songs reflecting upon life. Guys like David in the Psalms, we spent a whole series reading through them. I don't know about you, but I loved it. God has spoken through prophets, guys like Nathan, who then called out David's sin. They said, hey, this is right, this is wrong. That's what a prophet did. They were a spokesperson for God. And then seers. These are people that had kind of visions in the Old Testament, guys like Daniel. right? Guys had visions of the future, and we're going to talk about Daniel towards the end here before we get too far. So I said God's been in the communication business. So we have to ask ourselves the question now, what has God been saying What is the message that God is trying to communicate or is effectively communicating to us? And I contend this morning that God has had exactly one message. You see, God has been proclaiming the good news before it was good news. You see, God can't help but say things that are good. 
Every single thing that God says is by nature being said by him, good. Every word that he utters is good. And I would say that every single word in the good book, in the Bible, every single word that is written there points forward to Jesus Christ. Every story, every word, and every blank page and that's what we're going to get to at the very end, the intertestamental period. Every single aspect in the Bible points forward to Jesus Christ. And so what I want to do this morning is review just a few of the stories and teach creatively about how these stories that we've been reading through all point forward to Jesus Christ. And then we jump into the middle, the thing between the Old Testament and the New Testament before, before we continue on in the greatest stories ever told series. But before we do that, would you just pause, take a moment with me and pray. Heavenly Father, we love you so much. It is a gift and it is an opportunity to be here worshiping with you and worshiping you, God. We ask that you would open up our hearts, that you, um, through the ministering of the Holy Spirit, would, would cause us to know just a little bit more about who you are and the message that you've been communicating, how deeply you love us and how you long for us to be in a relationship with you, God. We ask that you would be ministering to us here this morning, that you would create a tailor-made message to each and every one of us as we hear your word preached. We love you. We ask this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Okay, so starting off with the first story that we read, Pastor Don Father Gill started the series, I don't know, about three or four months ago, and he taught on creation. Okay, now creation's an interesting one. How does a story like creation point forward to Jesus Christ? Well, in the beginning, God said, and that's how the world was created, right? God spoke, okay? Well, if you're speaking, what are you speaking? You're speaking words. We jump into John chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, and the author writes this. He says, in the beginning, the Word, capitalized, already existed. The Word was God, and the Word was with God. He existed in the beginning with God. So the Word is God, okay? God created everything through him. And nothing was created except through him. You see, God created through his word. At the very beginning, from the initial outset, when God creates, he creates by his word. So thus, God creates, and it's already pointing forward to Jesus Christ. Man created with the capacity to love and think and be creative and make choices ultimately chooses wrongly. We know that ultimately man chooses to not love God, to not live as they have called him to thus separating ourselves from him. But God has already proclaimed his intentions to walk with man, to love man, to cherish him. And so thus, out of the muck, while we're dead on the pavement, God lifts us up. God begins to set his plan, this grand story that he's weaving from the beginning in motion. This is step two. We jump forward quite a little bit, and we meet this guy named Abraham, who God then changes his name to Abraham, right? God says, hey, Abraham, Abram, I'm going to call you out of your land, out of the far east, from your land into a new land that I will give you. And through you, Abraham, I'm going to bless the entire world. Okay, like we said every single story points forward to Jesus in one way, shape, or form. You see, God was going to create and cultivate a family from Abraham, whom he would then use to be representatives of him, saying, hey, this is what it, likes to, this is what it looks like to be a part of my family. And that nation was Israel. That was Abraham's family. And then not only that, but through Abraham's family, through this nation of Israel, God was eventually going to come in the flesh. God was going to bless the entire world through Abraham by sending the Messiah through his line. The story of Abraham's God's calling to Abraham points forward to 
the coming of Jesus Christ. That's what that story is all about. That's what all the stories are about. So Abraham has a bunch of descendants who eventually become this great nation. But then they go down to Egypt and they're placed in slavery. God rescues Egypt. God rescues Israel out of Egypt. He calls them out of slavery. And God sends the people to the land that they were to, to conquest, that they were to conquer. But there's a problem there. There's already a bunch of people living in the land. Okay, so God tells this guy named Joshua, hey, Joshua, I want you to lead my people into this land. Okay, now here's a verse that a lot of you might have in your kitchens. I had it above my bed when I was a kid. But it says, Joshua 1, verse 9. This is my command, Joshua. Be strong and courageous. Don't be afraid or discouraged. For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Okay, how does a story like this point forward to to Jesus? It gets a little bit more complicated. There's already people living in the land. How does the Israelites displacing the Canaanites point forward to Jesus? If you know, the story is quite violent and brutal, and it's not very clean, actually. How does a story where the Israelites are displacing people point forward to Jesus? It's a great question. We could spend all morning on it. I'll give you just a little tidbit. You see, there's a, there's a verse in Genesis chapter 15, I think it's verse 6, where Abraham is passing through the land. Okay, Abraham's on his way, and then Abraham keeps on going. And God's like, hey, Abraham, I'm not going to give you this land yet. And there's an interesting note at the end of it. He says, for the sins of the Amorites, and the Amorites were the, the, kind of the representatives of the Canaanites, the people that were living in the land. He says, for the sins of the Amorites has not, does not yet warrant their destruction. Okay, what does that mean? It's a really interesting verse, just one line. But it's almost as if God's saying, hey, I'm still giving these people time to repent. Okay, we know through like ancient Near Eastern literature that these people practice child sacrifices. Okay, they were constantly at war with one another and they were very, a very bloodthirsty culture. Okay, and so God doesn't give Abraham the land yet because he's still waiting for the people of Canaan to repent. He's still waiting for them to turn back to him. okay. So that story points us forward to Jesus. All right, another story very much so like it that we learned that we can kind of begin to answer this question, how does this story point us forward to Jesus, is when Abraham's interceding for the people of Sodom and Gomorrah, okay? God's going to destroy the city of Sodom and Gomorrah, which his nephew Lot resides in. And Abraham goes, hey God, what if there's 50 righteous people in the cities? Will you destroy the city if there's 50 righteous people? God says, no, Abraham, I won't destroy the city. He says, okay, what if there's 45? What if there's 40? What if there's 30? What if there's 20? What if there's 10 righteous people? God says, no, I won't destroy the city. There's 10 righteous people. We know through biblical literature that God does eventually destroy the city. Apparently there was no righteous people in the city. And so how does a story like these point us forward to Jesus? Well, we see two things in them. Well, one is that God... God does not like sin. God takes sin very seriously. There's a punishment to be paid for sin. God wants to remove it. God wants to remove it from the face of the earth. God does not like sin. That's what we see in these stories. There's a punishment to be paid for it. We also see that God is wanting, he's waiting, and he's wanting us to repent. All right? He's eagerly calling us back towards him. Okay? God was waiting for these people, yet they didn't repent. So when the Israelites were coming into the land, it was time for judgment to be given to the Amorites and the Canaanites, etc. You see, these stories point us forward to Jesus by showing us the gravity of sin. God hates it. He does not like it, and it's not good for humanity. Sin, sin corrupts, sin destroys. And so the Israelites move into the land. 
We continue on the story, and there's this pagan woman named Ruth who suddenly becomes important, all right? And Ruth is an incredible story because she's a pagan, which means she's not a part of the chosen family that God had originally called to himself, right? She was an outsider. She was a foreigner. But God brings Ruth into the story, and he grafts her in, and he says, hey, Ruth, through you, I'm going to do something great. Okay, and now Ruth isn't the first story, but it's where we begin to see glimpses of what we call Gentile inclusion, or a pagan inclusion. You see, God's plan to Abraham, his promise, was to bless the entire world. God wanted to use Israel, the chosen people, to reveal himself to the entire world. He started with a small family that would eventually grow and grow and bless the entire world. And we see glimpses of breaking ins here and there all throughout the Old Testament. Ruth, or Rahab, all these people that aren't a part of the original family who God is drawing in towards himself. They're being grafted in. Ruth had a great grandson. His name was David, okay, who was the Davidic king, the guy who was after God's own heart, right? And eventually God would bring about a a king like David who, who was absent of all of his moral failures and flaws, but again, like David, we continue to learn for, learn about Jesus and things that point us forward to Jesus. You see, David was an image of the king to come. He was a Christ type, right? He was supposed to lead his people into faithful relationship with God. David was a little deposit, a little image of the future king to come. A king who wouldn't have all of his moral failures. The true Davidic king who would lead the people faithfully. Ken and John, the the authors of the book that we've been kind of walking through and kind of modeling after their stories, they write this. It's kind of a long quote, but I thought it was worth it. They say, we learn from the Old Testament how life with God actually is, not necessarily how it should be. You see, we have these picture-perfect ideas in our mind of what life with God is. I don't know if any of you guys know a painter named Thomas Kincaid, right? But he paints these perfect Disney-like settings, right? Everything's like, you know, the snow's falling, the river, the creek, you know, there's a fire in the heath, right? That, that's kind of the image that we have in our mind of what life should be like, but in the Old Testament, we see how life actually is, not necessarily how it should be. The stories are alarmingly real, refusing to gloss over life with all its humanity and brokenness. God refuses to wait until a golden boy hero comes along with his perfect teeth, broad shoulders, etc., right? God works with us. He meets us as we are. He doesn't wait for us to be perfect. He doesn't wait for the perfect king. He uses a guy like David who was deeply flawed. Many of you probably know the story of David, but he ended up killing his his neighbor so that he could sleep with his wife, right? This is a guy that God used, a guy a lot like you and I. You see, David's story points forward dramatically to Jesus Christ. We're going to kind of move along a little bit quickly because then we get to guys like Rehoboam and Jeroboam uh, or the Bowen brothers, if you remember the story, or Ray and Jerry, right? Kind of silly, but it's a good thing to help us remember. Um, and, and speaking of David's problems, David's sons had a lot of them, all right? Um, and they ended up tearing the kingdom into two. So God had this chosen people, these Israels, who was going to establish a kingdom on earth that were supposed to be a representative of him. But the people continue to sin. They continue to live in open rebellion against God. And this sin divides the kingdom in two. Okay? Israel was a united nation. Okay? They're effectively ministering and witnessing to their neighbors and the land around them. And then David's sin kind of creeps in, who God had used. And it divides the kingdom in two. So there's Israel in the north and Judah in the south. We've kind of covered this pretty extensively. All right? 
and it would get worse and worse and worse. Israel in the north had zero good kings, and so God picked them up and he sent them into exile. Judah in the south had some good kings, but most of them were pretty evil. And so God kind of waited a little bit longer for Judah. And this is where God sends all these prophets, guys like Amos or Hosea. Okay, Hosea was the prophet who went and married a prostitute. And it literally says in that story that, hey, Hosea, your love for your wife, Gomer, is a picture of my love for my people, right? Hosea went and married a a prostitute, and then she went and cheated on him, and he went and bought her back out of slavery. God says, this is a picture of my love for my people. Hosea is a literal Christ type. Or there's guys like Elijah, okay? Elijah was trying to call Israel back to faith in the one true God, and he had this giant showdown with all these other prophets of Baal, right? 450 of them on Mount Carmel, and then he calls down fire onto the altar. Okay, but before that, the quiet story before that, Elijah's living with this widow who doesn't have food and she says hey I'm going to eat my last meal and die and then Elijah multiplies the oil and the bread so that she can keep on eating and living who else in the Bible did we see multiplying food for the people yeah Jesus and then Elijah goes and it's like the author the author unknowingly was explicitly pointing forward to Christ the Elijah then goes and raises some guy from the dead and it's a crazy story I really can't comprehend it but he throws his body onto the bones of this dead guy and then the dead guy gets up out of the grave all right and we see who else in the Bible was raising people up out of the dead Jesus Christ. You know who pointed that out to me? You know who said, hey, you know what, Caleb, this point, this reminds me a lot of like Jesus, a sixth grade boy upstairs in our middle school room. You see, the stories are littered all over the place, and they're all pointing forward to Jesus. We see it again and again and again. It's so clear, so simple that even a sixth grade boy could see it, one who can't even sit down in a seat. <laughs> Yet he saw that this story was about Jesus. The prophets were calling the people back to, you know, the people of Israel and Judah back to God. Yet, yet the, the, we, we read the story and the sin continued to get worse. And so then we have this prophet like Jeremiah, who's kind of like the, known as the weeping prophet because there was not one person in Jeremiah's life who turned back to God during his ministry. And so God's like, hey, Jeremiah, stop praying for them. I'm sending these people into the exile. And we ask ourselves the question, how does this story, Caleb, point us forward to Jesus? Well, we see in a story like this that God is allowing us, he's willing to um, allow us to endure suffering and pain so that we might turn back to him, so that we might escape final judgment. God is allowing us to endure hardships so that we can ultimately come back to know him and be in relationship with him. The pain that Israel would experience short-term outweighed the glory that God would eventually bring out of the situation. Even Israel's story, going into exile, pointed us forward to the one day eventual King Jesus Christ. Uh, in, in every single one of these books, by the way, um, it would, it, we, we could exhaustively go through, and almost every single one of these stories that we've read, there's a verse at the very end of the book, and it says, but God was still faithful to his promise, and there was, there's a future hope, whether it's in Amos or Jeremiah. Jeremiah ends the story by pointing forward to this guy named Jehoiakim, who was a king, and he makes a small little note in Jeremiah chapter 52 about how Jehoiakim, this king who the Messiah would eventually come through, found favor in the court when he was in exile. Okay, so in every single one of these stories, there's a little glimpse of hope to come. 
So we continue on the story, following the narrative of the people of Israel, God's chosen people, the people that God eventually, that God called from Abraham, right? And God sends them into exile, okay? They're captured by um, the Babylonians, and then we get guys like Daniel, right? Daniel was a little boy during the exile, and he got picked up and moved to Babylon. Okay, eventually Babylon would be conquered by another kingdom, the, the Medes and the Persians, and there's a guy named Cyrus who allowed 50,000 of the Israelites to go back to their homeland. So 50,000 of them go back, there are guys like Ezra and Nehemiah, and they lead God's people faithfully back to Israel. But there's only 50,000 of them. Okay, and to give you perspective, at this time, there's about 1 million of God's people living in Egypt. All right, 1 million people living in Egypt, and there's 50,000 people living in Jerusalem. Kind of doesn't make sense. The people there know that, and they're like, wow, this is really pitiful. This can't be the kingdom that God's talking about. This can't be the restoration of everything good that he's always promised us and proclaimed to us. God, what are you doing? God sends a few more prophets to kind of encourage the people. Then there's this obscure prophecy in the book of Malachi about a guy named Elijah who's going to come back. And he's going to prepare the way for the Messiah. And then we get to the intertestamental period. There's 400 years of silence. 400 years from when God last speaks on paper through a prophet or anything like that to the birth and the announcement of Jesus Christ. And I told you at the very beginning that every single story in the Bible points forward to Jesus. Every single word and every single blank page. You see, during those 400 years of silence, there was a lot of activity that took place. There's a lot of things that were happening within the world. It's very strange because we closed the book in the Old Testament, and then all of a sudden the New Testament's set in a completely different world almost, it seems like. It seems very foreign, different. Um, the, whole, the whole Jewish religion is almost completely changed. There's a new world superpower, and there's a new culture, and there's a new language, okay? And, and as I prepared this message, I really wanted to enter into the nuance of all those things and go over all the different details about how the history took, change took place and all the different race and culture geopolitical movements. But I really felt like God was like saying, Caleb, I want you to share my story. I want you to teach this Jesus story throughout the Bible. I want you to show the people in our church how every single thing points forward to Jesus Christ. And so that's what we're doing here this morning. So again, we ask ourselves the question, what about these 400 years? How do these 400 years of silence point us forward to Jesus? Well, it's kind of interesting. If we go back to Daniel, our prophet who was in exile, you know, in Babylon. Daniel um, went and he goes and he interprets the king's dream. You know it. Probably we talked about it through God's providence. We actually taught in the book of Daniel about six months ago. But King Nebuchadnezzar, the, the king of Babylon, he has a dream, and he says, hey, wise man, I want you to interpret my dream. But I'm not going to tell you what my dream is. You just have to know what my dream is so that I know you're not giving me crap when you interpret the dream. Nobody can. Then finally, this Hebrew boy, Daniel, who's, you know, faithful, praying to God continuously, says, hey, I can tell you what your dream is. I serve the one true God. And so he goes and he tells Nebuchadnezzar his dream. He says, hey, Nebuchadnezzar, you had this dream of a statue and there's four different parts in this statue. And these four different parts represent your kingdom and the kingdoms that are to come afterwards. The first was the Babylonian Empire and then the Medes and the Persians and then the Greeks and then the Romans afterward. And Daniel in chapter 7 and chapter 11 would go on to predict and 
or, or we would say prophesy things that were to come during the intertestamental period. He went on to go in, into great detail what would happen during these 400 years of silence. He said it was so much detail and it was so accurate that scholars, critics of the Bible, say that this can't possibly have been written before it happened because it is so accurate. They say, no, this isn't prophecy, but rather this is history that somebody wrote after it already happened. Daniel said, hey, this is exactly what's going to take place. There's going to be these four kingdoms. This third kingdom, the Greeks, all right, it's absolutely stunning. I wish I could go into all the different details. But he prophesied how this guy named Alexander would come and conquer the world. And then his kingdom, Alexander's kingdom, would be divided into four different parts. And Alexander's kingdom wouldn't be ruled by his son. Daniel says all these things very, very specifically. It doesn't name him, but describes the events in, in vivid detail. Okay, so during this time, during these 400 years of silence... We're kind of jumping into the third kingdom. The Greeks was ruled by a guy named Alexander the Great. Okay, like I said, Alexander the Great, his kingdom would be divided into four different parts by four different generals. All right, Daniel predicts all of this with vivid detail, all right, during the intertestamental period. But what's important about this, during this 400 years of silence, it points forward to Jesus. I promise you this. Why? Because during this time, a common culture and a common language was established, universal, from all the way from Greek all the way to India. This was the, the known world during modern civilization at this point. Everything was conquered from Greek to Macedon had one language. That language was Greek. Okay, they had a common culture. Alexander was like, I want everybody to be Greek. I want everybody to be speaking my language, and I want Greek culture to dominate the world. It's a period known as Hellenism. Okay? And it did. He was pretty, pretty effective, pretty successful, all right? So now everybody, for the first time in forever, is speaking one language, Greek, at least partially. And then Daniel predicted the fourth kingdom, the Romans, all right? And Rome was pretty, a lot like Greek, okay? They also conquered the known world, and they established what historians call like kind of Pax Romana, which is short for, for world peace, okay, Roman peace, all right, it was enforced world peace because Rome conquered the world, and if you didn't obey them, they would kill you or destroy your civilization. But there was world peace. And what Rome did is they built roads all over the world, 250,000 miles of roads. 50,000 of them were paved. Now, I can't really comprehend why that's significant or important. Okay, I can't comprehend what 250,000 miles of roads looks like. But I do know this, that when the time came for the gospel to be proclaimed all across the world, there was roads allowing guys like Paul to go there. All the cities were connected so that new information, new ideas could travel quickly and effectively. Okay, you see, during these 400 years of silence, even though God wasn't speaking, he spoke about them previously. And then he allowed something to be created perfectly so that when his son came, the whole world could know about him. You see, every single story in the Bible, even the intertestamental period, that 400 years of silence points forward to Jesus Christ in one way, shape, or form. We started with Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1, saying, In the past, God's spoken to us through prophets in various ways, right? If we keep on reading, Hebrews chapter 1, verse 2 says this, But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom he also made the universe. You see, Jesus Christ is the definitive revelation of who God is. He's at the center of God's grand story. The story is all about him. 
And because he's at the story of God, he's at the center of God's story, he's also at the center of our lives. He's at the center of our stories. And our stories find meaning and purpose when they're placed within his greater story. I shared with you really quickly at the very beginning about how my story of being hit by a car found meaning and purpose when I placed it within the larger picture of Jesus Christ. Well, it's also true for each and every one of us here today. And so now I begin to wonder, where is God at when he's writing your story? And that's a question that I can't answer for you. That's a question only you can answer. Maybe you're waiting to be invited in. Maybe you were here and you left for 10 years and for some odd reason a family member or relative or friends calling you back. Or maybe you've been here for the past decade. Maybe you've been following Jesus for 20 years and you've been on this incredible journey of ups and downs and God's taken you to places like Zion National Park. He's done things in your life that you couldn't have possibly dreamed of. The good news is that God's still writing a story. He's still causing things to work out. God is the grand story writer. He is the grand story teller. I thought this was a really good sermon um, for a day like today um, because we have guys like John, Jack, and others who are, are stepping into eldership at our church, right? They're embracing the story that God's written in their lives, and that's just a small part of it. And then first service, Tiffany Hennessy was here. And Tiffany's been leading the food pantry for the past almost a decade, so the past seven years, effectively ministering to our neighborhood and our community. God's using her, God used her to be a witness here in our Washington local schools community. And now we have guys like Gary and Aaron Hughes, okay, two people whose families God has merged together. And God's called Gary and Aaron into ministry, and they're now leading the food pantry. And the cool thing that I get to see is that because Gary and Aaron are here, faithfully ministering to our community, their kids are also here. And their kids are also just growing up in the church, and they're here at youth group every week helping me set up. Why? Because they're following the model that's been set for them by their parents. Okay, Gary and Aaron are embracing the story that God's written for their lives. And God's doing incredible things, things that I can guarantee you they never would have dreamed about. So where are you at this morning? What's the story that God's writing in your life? I want to challenge you as you drive home today or as you go out to lunch with your family to take a moment and reflect and share with your family, share with your spouse, share with your children. Please share with your children. Talk with your families. What is the story that God's writing in your life? What are the things he said? What are the things he's done? And what are the things you think he's doing? Share these words. Tell these stories. You see, our lives find meaning and purpose when the story is placed within the greater context of the Christ story. Every single story in the Bible in some way, shape, or form pours forward to Jesus. Will you pray with me this morning? Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that you are just the grand storyteller. You're the grand story writer. And, and you know every single detail and, and thing that's going on in our lives right now. And so I just pray for, for every single person that's here in our church, God. And people that you're even going to bring into our church in the next coming decade, God. We just pray um, that we would be drawn into to your story, that we would know the love that you have for us, God, that you would give us eyes to see the things that you're doing. 
and that you'd give us hearts boldly to respond to you, God, to play our part, to play our role in your grand story as we look forward to the coming of Jesus Christ. God, we love you so much. We thank you that you use people like us who are, are broken, who aren't perfect, who don't have perfect teeth, who don't have broad shoulders, God, who are kind of odd and sometimes smelly, God. We thank you that you use us. And you use us to you to do incredible things, God. Someone only, something only you could do. We love you. We commit all things to you in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.